0: Well, many ardent atheists are atheists because they believe Jesus Christ was a false prophet. They claim that he predicted the end of the world in his own lifetime and that he was wrong. And our text this morning, Matthew chapter 24, is one of the main reasons why they do so. As you're turning there, let me just read again. I'll jump in the middle. Verse 30 says, then will appear in heaven the sign of of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth are morn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then just a couple verses later, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so they say, see, Jesus predicted his second coming in their lifetime, and it didn't happen. In his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, famous atheist Bertrand Russell said that Jesus, quote, certainly thought that his second coming would occur in clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. There are a great many texts that prove that, and there are a lot of places where it's quite clear that he believed that his coming would happen during the lifetime of many then living. That was the belief of his earlier followers, and it was the basis basis of a good deal of his moral teaching. Liberal theologian and philosopher Albert Schweitzer said that Jesus threw himself on the wheel of history to try to bring the world to an end, and it ended up getting crushed by it. He says he was wrong. Even C.S. Lewis, who has so many good things to say on so many things, considered Matthew 24:34 quotes the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. End quote. He wrote this, it's clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime, and worse still, they had a reason, and one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared, and indeed created, their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass till all these things be done, and he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else, end quote. Yikes. Are these skeptics correct? Was Jesus a false prophet? Well, if these verses are about the second coming, it seems they are right. But my contention is that these verses are not about the second coming. Rather, they are about the vindication of Jesus Christ as universal king in his first coming. Stay with me. I've got a case to make. I mentioned last week this is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible. Many agree. Matthew chapter 24, also Luke 21, Mark 13. Some of the hardest passages we have to wrestle with. So remember that we're in the deep end this morning. And remember our tips for interpretation I mentioned last week. Just five quick tips. Number one, we want to discover what the author intended. We're after the author's intention. Number two, we want to read obscure passages in light of the clear. We want to read the obscure in light of the clear. Number three, context is king. And so context matters for interpretation. Number four, scripture interprets scripture. And then number five, we've got to remember that Scripture is not written to us, but for us. And so audience relevance. So the solution to these atheists, there's many more, these accusations, is not to try to make thirty verse 34 say something that it doesn't say. Many go that route. Probably most go that route. I don't think we should go that route. Look again at Matthew 24, verse 34. we want to read the clear. Jesus says, Truly. Verily, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, who's the you? audience relevance. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He uses the second person pronoun you nine times in this chapter. He's saying the same things to the same people about the same time period in verse 2, 6, 9, 19, 23, 25, 26, 33, and 34. Jesus is speaking to his contemporaries of things they will experience within a generation. He says you, not they, He's not talking about us now, but about them then. And Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus does not say that generation, referring to some people far off. He's talking about the generation that's hearing him speak. He said the same thing in in chapter 23, verse 36, just a little while ago. Flip over there to 23, 36. Jesus, after speaking there to the Pharisees, the woes, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So it's a major stretch to say that Jesus is talking about a future generation rather than his own. That word generation overwhelmingly and consistently and repeatedly refers to people alive at that time. It's used 38 other times in the New Testament. Everyone refers to a contemporary group of people that were then alive. It always refers to Jesus' contemporaries. And in the Bible, that's about 40 years. It's the word genea. That word means generation. That word does not mean race. It never means race. That word for race is genos. Jesus knows that word. If he had intended to say that word, he would have said that word. He did not. It does not mean nation. That word is ethnos. Jesus knows that word, too. Jesus knows lots of words. <laughs> generation never means race or nation in the Gospel of Matthew. The word generation, even here, context is king. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's used 18 times. And every time, it refers to the people that Jesus is addressing. Just to look at one example, flip to the very first time it's used and back in chapter 1 of Matthew. Again, could look at 18 of these but I'll spare you and we'll look at one. Let's look at Matthew 1.17. So all the generations Matthew 117 all the generations there it is from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ 14 generations it means generation he's not talking about 42 nations or 42 races he's talking about 42 generations new testament scholar ff bruce wrote this about this verse he said the phrase this generation is found too often on jesus's lips in this literal sense for us to suppose that it suddenly takes on a different meaning in the saying we're now examining that's what a lot of interpreters try to do Moreover, Bruce continues, if the generation of the end time had been intended, that generation would have been a more natural way of referring to it than this generation. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson said that the word generation, quote, can only with the greatest difficulty be made to mean anything other than generation living when Jesus spoke. Baptist theologian John Gill wrote, this is a full and clear proof that not anything that is said before verse 34 relates to the second coming of Christ, the day of judgment, and the end of the world, but that all belong to the coming of the Son of Man in the destruction of Jerusalem and to the end of the Jewish state, end quotes. One more commentator, the notion that generation means race and that this prophecy is to be extended into the far future is totally devoid of foundation and has to be rejected as a ridiculous and appalling case of special pleading. In Matthew, this generation always means the present generation, not this race or any notion of of an extended series of offspring. Jesus says this generation will not die until all these things take place. Jesus doesn't say some of these things, but all of these things. And Jesus says these things, not those things. And so just like last week, verse 34, it's a guiding verse for us. It's an anchor passage. And I'm pounding this home for three main reasons. One, I just want us to take the words of Jesus with utmost seriousness. Two, I want to show you these atheists are dead wrong. And three, many interpreters try to kick much of this stuff out in the distant future, and I just don't think that flies. So I I think the verse is clear, verse 34. But even if someone tried to make verse 34 mean something besides what it seems to clearly say, it doesn't solve the problem of seeing these verses as about the second coming. Let me show you why. Flip back to Matthew 10. Remember that? Just pretend and encourage me. Matthew 10, 23. My thesis is that the Son of Man coming, in verse 30, is not the second coming because of what Jesus says in verse 34, but also because of the passages I'm about to show you. Matthew 10, 23. Jesus speaking to his disciples, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next for... Truly, verily, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Says the exact same thing, doesn't it? Tells his disciples, you won't even make it out of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Flip over to chapter 16. Verse 28. Jesus says, truly, verily, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So first he tells the disciples, some of you won't even make it out of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And then he says, some of you standing here won't even be dead yet and you'll see it happen. Then we see our verse, 24-34, and then let's look over to chapter 26, verse 62. 26-62. And the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You've said so, but I tell you, high priest, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Quite clearly and even repeatedly, The Son of Man comes in the first century. It's the clear teaching of this passage. So it can't be the second coming. Well, if these verses are not about the second coming, and I agree, to our ears, it sure sounds that way, doesn't it? But if that's not it, what is Jesus talking about? Well, that's my task for the rest of our time together. I know this view is probably new to many of you, probably most of you, and so I would just encourage you to be like the Bereans. You know the Bereans in Acts chapter 17? The word goes there, and the Bereans were more noble than the other people. Why? Because they diligently studied the Scriptures to see if these things were so. And so that's my challenge. Go and be a good Berean. Try to, try to shred your preconceived notions about what these verses are about and try to get into the mind of a first-century Jewish person. Here's the main point, all that by way of introduction. Jesus will judge old covenant Israel by destroying the temple through the Roman army. And this judgment will be his vindication, his enthronement, where he will receive all authority and the gospel will go forth to the nations. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Immediately. Jesus is and has been talking to his first century audience. He has been the whole chapter, and the whole chapter is all connected. Remember, we saw last week, look at verse 9 of chapter 24. So there's verses 1 to 8, and then in verse 9, Jesus says, then... So this is all connected. Sometimes people try to separate this out. It just doesn't work. Then in verse 15, after laying out some more, Jesus says, therefore, or so in verse 15. Then he lays out some tribulation that's going to happen to his disciples. And then in verse 29, immediately after that. And so this is all a unit that belongs together and it was all fulfilled in the first century. I know this sounds silly to say, but immediately means immediately like right after right after this tribulation just mentioned what's going to happen the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light so we have these these various events of tribulation described in verses 1 to 28 including the great tribulation we saw which we saw was all first century stuff. And then immediately after that, after the tribulation, there's going to be this cosmic disorder, sun and moon darkened, falling stars, heaven shaken, astronomical decreation. Now, did that happen in the first century? Jesus said it did. All these things will take place within his generation. And so the question before us is, do we take this Cosmic language, do we take it literally or literarily? In other words, what did Jesus intend by this language? Author's intent. Did he mean that we should be expecting the actual moon and sun to stop working? Did he mean that actual stars will literally fall from the sky to the ground? Or Was he seeking to communicate something else with this language? Did he intend something different? I think so. Let me explain. We're dealing here with what we call apocalyptic literature. It's a different type, a different genre of literature. There's lots of genres in the scripture, and the apocalyptic one is really the weird stuff. It's the visions and the crazy language. About the closest thing we have today is sci-fi literature. And apocalyptic language is not to be taken literally, but literarily. In other words, I don't think Jesus intends us to look for a literal darkened sun. Rather, he expects us to know our Bibles. And all throughout the Old Testament, this language of a collapsing solar system is used to refer to historical judgments on a nation. In this way, Jesus is just being just like the Old Testament prophets. Here's how commentator R.T. France puts it. Language about cosmic collapse then is used by the Old Testament prophets to symbolize God's acts of judgment within history with the emphasis on catastrophic political reversals. And so the Old Testament prophets would often use this figurative and symbolic language to refer to the historical end of a sinful nation's existence through judgment and then the emerging of a, of a dominant victorious kingdom. And we do this all the time, actually, if you stop and think about it. Let's say that there's in, in, a, in 500 years, someone's looking through the archives of the Dallas Morning News and they're reading to their children at, you know, at the table there and they say, Look, in 2010... There was this basketball player named Shaquille O'Neal. And it says here, when they were playing the Mavs, he had an earth-shattering dunk. Can you believe that, children? This guy dunked it so hard, the earth shattered. I wonder how they fixed that. Well, what do we mean by that? Do we mean that the earth literally shattered? No, we're using symbolic language to say it was a monster dunk, not like a literal monster, but a dunk with force. This collapsing solar system language is used symbolically to represent catastrophic socio political changes within history. It's about the downfall and change of seemingly permanent political social orders. The stars would just as soon as fall before the Jerusalem temple would fall. And again, if we knew our Old Testament, we would know this because the Old Testament is chock full of this decreation language to refer to temporal acts of judgment against political and religious entities. So let's let God's word, not the newspaper, define our terms. Scripture interprets scripture. So let me just show you. I've got several of these we'll put on the screen. I want to read just a sampling of what we could have looked at. Isaiah 13 is a judgment by God on Babylon through the Medes. God often would judge his people through pagan nations just like he would judge his people in the first century through pagan Rome. Listen to the language Isaiah uses in Isaiah 13 verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its lights. Did those things literally happen when the Medes invaded Babylon? I say no. It's symbolic language to refer to the end of something you never thought would end. Isaiah 34 Verse 3, very similar. This time on Edom. Judgment on Edom. How's it described? Collapsing solar system. Isaiah 34, 3. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Did that really happen? That just means there's a lot of blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill, and the heavens behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Let me flip over to the prophet Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. Similar language, speaking of judgment. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Really? Literally? In the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and the hills moved to and fro. Let me flip over to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 32. This is just describing a judgment on Egypt. Ezekiel 32, verse 6. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will, will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. Joel. Let me flip over to the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 10, talking about the judgment of Judah. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Joel chapter 2, verse 30, more of the same. I will show you wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape As the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those to whom the Lord calls. Joel chapter 3, verse 15, the sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Did this actually literally happen or is this a symbolic and figurative way of saying this judgment's really severe in significance? Micah chapter 1 verse 3, behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open. More symbolic language to speak of the severity of judgment. Amos chapter 8 verse 9, and on that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. The stars did not literally fall and the sun wasn't literally darkened with these historical judgments. That wasn't the point. It's apocalyptic literature. The point was it's lights out for these nations. They're done. So did the stars literally fall in the first century? No, but a seemingly unshakable entity, the Jerusalem temple, Was destroyed. And the best way to describe that is just like the prophets before with cosmic decreation language. Jesus is saying this will be an earth shattering event. Look at verse 30. Back to Matthew 24. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, you're like, all right, Blake, no way that happened in the first century. But again, Jesus said all these things would happen within a generation. And not only that, we've already seen four other times in this gospel that he said the exact same thing. Matthew 10, 23, 16, 28, 24, 34, and then 26, 64. Jesus said it did, and I believe him, and I want you to believe him. And so let's just ask some questions here of this verse. Most significantly, what is the coming of the Son of Man? Well, I've already mentioned it, but my take, and again, many others, although it's still a minority view today, is that the Son of Man coming, in this verse, is not about the second coming, but is about the first coming. Why do I say that? Two reasons. Number one, Jesus said in verse 34 that all these things will take place within a generation. Just to pound that home. He said it. I didn't. He said it. I didn't. The eighth is wrong. But number two, Scripture interprets Scripture. And this here is a quotation, it's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's right there in your cross references. And Daniel 7 is a vision, it's the same vision that's in Daniel 2, and it's a vision of four beasts representing four worldly kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman. And Daniel shows that when the king comes, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. So Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is really important. Listen to what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples... Nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, Daniel 7 is a heavenly vision. In other words, it's a vision from God's perspective, the Ancient of Days. And notice the direction of the coming. It is not a coming from heaven to earth, therefore, it can't be the second coming. It's a vision from earth to heaven. The Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, to the Father, and there is presented and given all authority. It is not a descent; it is an ascent. So Daniel 7 is not about final judgment, but about the defeat of the fourth beast and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Note that the kingdoms of the world are described as beasts. And a human, the son of man, must have dominion over them. Just like it was in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 with the man and the woman, the humans, having dominion over the creatures. This is new creation. The son of man coming is the son of man becoming king. It's the Son of Man being vindicated and given all authority in a kingdom consisting of all nations. It's Daniel 7, and that's what Jesus is quoting. He's the forever king for everyone. That's how this gospel started. It's what we've seen every week. And so Daniel 7, and therefore, Matthew 24, verse 30. It's not the second coming, but it's an enthronement scene. It's a coronation scene. This is about the vindication of Jesus. As he judges his enemies, which sadly have become Israel. Just like he's been saying since Matthew chapter 21. In many ways, since Matthew chapter 3, when, Jesus, when John the Baptist said, repent, the axe is already laid at the roots. The vindication of Jesus as he judges those who become his enemies, just like he said he would. Caiaphas asks if he's the Christ, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's about the Son of Man becoming king. The enthronement of the Son of Man is fulfilled as the Jerusalem temples destroyed in AD 70. The sign mentioned here that they will see, they will perceive, the sign of the Son of Man's vindication is the destroyed temple. This is where the Old Covenant definitively ended and where the kingdom of God definitively began. And it all happens. Within a generation, just like Jesus prophesied that it would. Well, who are the tribes of the earth? The tribes of the earth will mourn. It's actually an unfortunate translation here. Many of your Bibles will say tribes of the land. The NIV and the CSB both have a footnote saying tribes of the land. The word is gay, not cosmos. It's the tribes of the land. And who are the tribes of the land? every time the New Testament uses this word tribes, it's referring to the tribes of Israel. The tribes of the land, Israel, will mourn as their city is burned. What about the clouds? Coming on the clouds again. This isn't to be taken literally, but symbolically. How do we know that? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. And again and again, in the Old Testament, God often came on the clouds to judge people. Jesus is a man of the book. He's a prophet. He's the final prophet. Let me just give you a few examples again. I can multiply these by ten. We'll just do a few. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. Clouds mean gloom. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to judge and comes to Egypt, excuse me, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Let me flip over to Psalm 18, verse 7. Judgment and clouds go together in Jesus' Bible. Psalm 18, verse 7. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also Of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water, out of the brightness before him. Hellstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Nahum 1, 3. He was in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet as he comes in judgment. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3. For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a day of doom for the nations. Joel chapter 2, Verses 1 and 2, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So what does all this mean? Very simply, as we've seen from Matthew 21, 22, 23, and 24, Jesus is about to judge old covenant Israel. He's about to end The old order and the final authority of the Son of Man will be established as the old covenant ends and the new covenant begins. The old order is replaced by the sovereignty of the vindicated Son of Man. Jesus is on the throne. Look at Matthew 24, verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, who are the angels sent out then? I think there's two options within the view that I'm proposing here. One, it could be angelic beings, actually disembodied spirits, that go out and give power and undergird evangelism. The New Testament does use angels that way sometimes. For example, Hebrews chapter 1 speaks of angels and says that they are Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels come alongside us, work with us. But I think probably more likely the word just means messenger. That's what the word often means. The word angelos can mean angel or messenger. Matthew, again, context as king, has already used this word angelos to use messenger. Just think about probably the most well-known, Matthew chapter 3. Behold, I will send my angelos before you who will preach the gospel. Was that some disembodied spirit? No, that was John the Baptist. He was the messenger, the angelos. Same word. And these messengers, these evangelists are sent out to do what? To gather the elect in from the four winds. These are these evangelists, these gospelists that are sent out to preach the gospel And gather in the new Israel like he said would already happen. Flip back with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8 verse 10. Scripture interprets scripture. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west The four winds, and they'll recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, Israel, will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those scattered abroad will be gathered together into one people. Evangelists go out and preach the gospel, and the end gathering of God's elect starts. When? When the new covenant begins. This here is the launch of the church. So all the promises about God gathering his people began being fulfilled right here as this gospel of the kingdom now goes forth to all the nations. And there'll be a trumpet. What's that about? Trumpets often accompany major events in redemptive history. And here we have the the definitive beginning of the kingdom, beginning of the new covenant. It was used in Exodus 19. There was a trumpet when the old covenant was inaugurated. The trumpet blast. It's a turning point in the mission of God to use the language of acts we are moving from jerusalem to judea to samaria to the ends of the earth now that the son of man is enthroned with all authority he begins to build a kingdom including all peoples all nations all languages and how does he does how does he do it through his messengers This enthronement is the basis for missions and evangelism. This good news, this gospel of the kingdom, was largely confined to Jerusalem for most of history until this point. And even in the book of Acts, before the temple was destroyed, it was mostly just seen as a Jewish sect. But when there is no more temple, this gospel of the kingdom goes everywhere. Look at verse 32 of Matthew 24. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So, also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Jesus used the illustration of the fig tree. Listen to what Luke's recording of the Olivet Discourse says. He told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. In other words, you know that the king's about to be installed at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is about to judge Israel and be installed as king, and we are to spread his rule to the nations. And we begin with our hearts and our homes and our work. Look again at verse 34. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, Jesus says, truly, truly. Truly, I say to you, Jesus is dogmatic here. This generation will not pass until all these things take place. Again, generation cannot be twisted to mean some future generation. It can't mean race or nation. Matthew uses it 18 times every time it refers to the generation that Jesus is addressing. He says this generation, not that generation. He says all these things, not some of these things. He says these things, not those things. I submit that it's crystal clear. So, friends. The atheists are, oh, so dead wrong. Matthew 24, 34 shouldn't be considered the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. It should be one of the most emboldening verses in the Bible. Jesus is a true prophet. Jesus said, that the temple would be destroyed within a generation and approximately 40 years later, the Roman army came in and wiped it out and didn't leave one stone upon another. Just like Jesus prophesied. His word is truth. Jesus was not wrong. Jesus says, my words will not pass away Jesus says you can trust my prediction you can take it to the bank this check won't bounce my words are totally reliable you can build your life here and stand secure come what may Jesus was right kids look look up here at me real quick I realize these last two sermons may have been a tad difficult to follow the adults said amen (laughs) A final word for you, though. Here's the point. You can trust King Jesus. He knows what he's talking about.